through a study on the doctrines of grace, better known as the five points of Calvinism, or TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, election limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Um, Dan had started a series on this a while ago, and then um, COVID happened, it got dropped, but I remember when Dan started it, I was really excited about it. I love this stuff. I love the doctrines of grace. These are some of my favorite things that I've ever learned and ever studied are the doctrines of grace. And because it's really the doctrine of salvation, it's how God has saved us, where we were and where God has brought us and how he gets us there. Um, it is soteriology at its core. Soteriology is the study of salvation or how we are saved. Um, I get excited about it. I really love it. So I thought I'd pick it back up. Um, now, I taught on this before, and when I taught on this before, I used a document by John Piper and the Bethlehem Baptist Church staff, and it was called What We Believe About the Five Points of Calvinism. And that paper that the, the, the church staff at Bethlehem Baptist uh, used, has, is, it's no longer just a paper. The last I knew it was in a book, and I think the book is back there. I forgot to check when I walked in. Um, but I think there's a book back there, and it's, the book is... Um, the five points of Calvinism, or is the doctrines of grace. It's, um, and it's back there. Um, but then, uh, when I went through this before, it would have been, when I went through this uh, with a group of high school students, it would have been probably 04 or 05. So quite a while ago, we're talking 18 years ago, that I went through this with high school students. And at the time I went through it, um, I didn't notice some of Piper's errant theology his poor theology that was in there. Um, and a few years ago, this is a little before COVID, there, I read a Trinity review. This is from Gordon Clark's organization, the Trinity Foundation. And this is a paper on John Piper on final justification by works. And it's about where John Piper has gone wrong. Um, it was a serious enough error when I read this that I decided um, Dan was, going, was also using a book by John Piper in Sunday School. I decided to give a copy to Dan, just so something for him to look for in John Piper's work. I gave another copy to Calvin or to Pastor Walden. Um, but so I still the, the information I have on doctrines of grace, a lot of it came from Piper. But I kind of want to warn you, I still got some stuff in here from Piper, but I'm going to give you this warning about um, some errors with Piper, and so I'm just going to give you. Um, and actually, I looked it up, and I found in that document that I used years ago, that's what we believe about the five points of Calvinism by John Piper, I found, uh, I read through it again, or I read some of it, and I found this. And this is what I want you to see. Um, I just want to point this out to you so that if you do, John Piper is usually very good. And a lot of us have used his stuff, but I just want you to be aware of this, something to look for. Okay, so this is a quote from... Um, from his document. This was the 1985 version. Um, he updated it a handful of times. Um, so in the 1985, which is the original version, this is what it says. It says, God justifies us on the first genuine act of saving faith. But in doing so, he has a view to all subsequent acts of faith contained, as it were, like a seed in that first act. Nevertheless, he says, we must own up to the fact that our final salvation is made contingent upon subsequent obedience. Did you hear that? He says, our salvation is made contingent upon subsequent obedience. That is not 
true, and that is a bad error. That is not something I can just overlook and say, oh, we'll keep using Piper's stuff. That's a really bad error. That is a different gospel. I mean, you know what Paul says. If somebody preaches a, a gospel other than what I preach to you, saying that your salvation is contingent upon your obedience is a really bad error. So I want to point that out to you. Now, this paper is on how Piper uses justification. He says there's, Piper splits justification into two justifications. Um, an initial justification, which you're saved by faith, and then a final justification, um, after you've gone to glory, a final justification, and that justification is based on works. Um, that's where his error is. Now, maybe someday I'll have a lesson on In fact, I already kind of started putting together a lesson on justification to show where the error is. Um, but it even goes farther than that. Even that he, he, in here he says salvation is made contingent upon your obedience, and that's just not true. Um, and that's a, such a bad error, I, I wanted to point it out. Um, so if you want to know more on the doctrines of grace, John Piper does have a book back there. And for the most part, it's really good. And I used it before, and I didn't even, I must have read right over this and just missed it. I didn't even notice it before. Or maybe it wasn't in the version I was using, I'm not sure. Um, but because John Piper is generally really good, to see something like this is really surprising. Um, it's kind of shocking to read that and to go, wow. Um, how does he get that so wrong? And so one answer to how he gets that wrong is um, he went to Fuller Seminary, and Fuller Seminary, and um, that's what Fuller, te Fuller teaches some of that. Um, but anyway, uh, so I'll read this to you. Uh, one of my favorite verses of all time, that's foundation verse, and most of you probably memorized it when you were kids. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that anyone may boast. You have been saved through faith, and it is a gift of God. Faith is a gift, right? The gift is faith, and you are saved through faith, not of your works. Works can have no part of it, right? Amen. <laughs> uh, so on to the, uh, so um, about a year or so ago, uh, I was driving to Wisconsin, and for some reason, I remember this time, I didn't bring my kids with me. Um, usually if the kids come with me, they listen to Adventures in Odyssey or Lamplight or Fever as we're going down the road. But I was by myself, so I was listening to um, messages by John MacArthur. Um, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul are my two, they're my two favorites to listen to. Um, I was listening to the message by John MacArthur as I drove, and it was on, um, it was on COVID and the riots. And uh, what was unexpected about that is he, he's asked the question, who's to blame for the riots? And his lesson was a lesson on total depravity. Um, I went back to try to find that lesson, um, that it was a sermon that he had done. And I did eventually find it, but it took me listening to three or four other sermons by him before I found the one I was looking for. And in my searching, I stumbled across an interview by Phil Johnson with John MacArthur. Phil Johnson is kind of John MacArthur's right-hand man. Um, if you've read a book by John MacArthur, you've read Phil Johnson's writing. Um, even though John is the general editor of most of the stuff, um, Phil Johnson is kind of his editor also. Um, but in that um, sermon, or the, in that interview by Phil Johnson and John MacArthur, John MacArthur talks about a new Bible translation. So this is something I didn't know about until this uh, one week ago today. I was driving to Columbus while I was listening to these things. And um, there's a new Bible translation called the Legacy Standard Version. 
And so um, I heard some about it from John MacArthur. I looked into it more, and I fell in love with it right away. So um, the reason I'm telling you this is because all the quotes I'm going to use in today's lesson from the Scripture are coming from the Legacy Standard Version. I really like this version. So the basically, I'll try to give you a summary quick here. I don't want to spend all my time <laughs> on background. But um, what it is is um, the Master Seminary, John MacArthur, and a handful of other Bible scholars uh, got together and decided they needed a new version that was more true to the original because new translations these days are constantly getting updated, and they're getting updated to try to make the version more understandable to the reader. And generally, they lose some meaning or things are going kind of in the wrong direction. They wanted to go back and change things so they're more true to what the original author had intended. They want to make it as true to the original language as possible. Um, and so that's what they've done. And that version is now out, the Legacy Standard Version. You can download it. I have it on my phone now. I have it on my computer. And I, I ordered a, a paper version. I'll try to remember to bring it with me if you want to see it. Um, but um, some of the things they did, I mean, they did go through the entire Scripture, and they, used, they, they looked at every verse. But they used the uh, NAS from 1995 as their base. So a lot of it is just the same as the New American Standard from 1995. Now, the New American Standard has been updated a few times since 95. In fact, Cliff Montra and I were talking about this a few months ago. We have these Bible apps. Well, they update the Bible versions on there. And we wondered, Cliff and I both, what are they changing? They update these versions, and who knows what they changed? Um, they get updated. They change. Sometimes you stumble across something and go, oh, they changed this. But we don't know what it is. Um, and usually when we find it, it's not good. Um, so I was happy to hear about this Legacy Standard Version. Um, and I've, I've read a bunch of it. Um, it's really good so far. One of the things that they do um, that Cliff Middleton, who I don't see here, would appreciate is in the Old Testament, they translate the name of God as Yahweh. They don't translate it as Lord. Um, they take the Tetragrammaton, which is YHWH, which is what's in the original Hebrew. YHWH, it's in Hebrew letters, not in English letters. Anyway, and... <laughs> And they translate that as Yahweh, so you know exactly when that name of the Lord comes up. It's right there in Scripture. You don't have to... Sometimes Lord is translated from a few different names of God um, or a different word for Lord. But in this translation, the Legacy Standard Version, there's no ambiguity there. You know what it is because it says Yahweh right there. Yahweh is the English alliteration to the Tetragrammaton, the YHWH. Um, but anyway, enough about that. Um, so I'm going to be using the Legacy Standard Version from now on, so if you hear it. And one of the things that I wanted to make you aware of is because as I read it, and you read in your NES or ESV or King James or whatever you're using, and you notice the difference in there, you, that's why. It's because I'm using a, a new version that's co recently come out just in the past couple months. Okay. Now, as my searching through these, like John MacArthur sermons, I did eventually find the sermon I was looking for. And it's called, Who's to Blame for the Riots? And it's from June 7th of 2020. I'm telling you this because um, I used a lot of that sermon for this lesson. So I want you to know that this is where I got the information from. Um, I overheard Pastor Walden and uh, Pastor Cook talking uh, a few months ago. And they mentioned a friend of theirs or somebody they knew that had plagiarized the sermon by John MacArthur. So I don't want to be accused of that. So I'll just tell you straight out, I used a lot of his information, and that's where I got a lot of this from. Um, so total depravity. 
So total depravity is the first of five doctrines in the doctrines of grace, or the five points of Calvinism. A proper understanding of total depravity is key to understanding all of the doctrines of grace. In fact, it's the most pivotal one. Basically, if you get total depravity right, all the other four fall into place. You have no other options for believing anything but the other four if you get total depravity right. So this one is vitally important. Now, at first I thought I wasn't going to cover the basics of total depravity, and I, I want to try in my studies of these doctrines of grace to push your understanding of not only what the doctrines are, but what they mean, and what, and what the consequences of them are, and how far can we take them, or how far can we go. I want to look at pushing the limits, so more than just a review of the basics, I want to take these in depth, and that's one of the things I'm going to do today with, the, with total depravity. But Pastor Weldon's gone, so I heard the young people were going to be here. So I want to go back and cover some of the basics of total depravity for their benefit. Okay? So total depravity, it's also called total inability. That's the phrase Cliff Middleton likes is total inability. Uh, moral inability, it's been called total corruption or radical corruption, and if you know R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries, he likes that term, radical corruption, because his name is R.C. Radical corruption is R.C., right? So he would say, you have an example of total depravity sitting in front of you because his name is R.C., radical corruption. Anyway. <laughs> so total depravity defined. Now, um, I had this definition in some old notes. I think it's partly from Piper just so you know, but it's a good definition. So here's the definition of total depravity. Because of Adam's fall, man is born not merely wounded, but radically depraved and spiritually dead. In man's natural state, he is absolutely unable to affect his own salvation. In this condition, man is a slave to sin and hostile to God, having neither the ability nor the desire to repent and turn to him. That's a good definition. That's total depravity. So unregenerate man, the unbeliever, is in total rebellion against God. He is totally unable to submit to God and do any good before God. And man's total rebellion against God is deserving of eternal punishment in hell. Which Dan did a really good job of covering uh, just recently. Um, so here, let me give you some verses that support total depravity. I'm going to give these to you in shotgun form. I'm just going to throw them to you all at once, okay? A lot of these you know. Romans 3.23, you should be able to quote that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. By the way, what can dead people do? Not much. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Romans 8, 7 and 8, the mind is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Titus 3.3 3, For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. That's just a very short sampling of verses that support total depravity. Um, if you have your Trinity hymnal, uh, turn to page 676. So I want to show you that this is in, um, it's in, our, our, in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is in our doctrinal statement. It's there and it's very clear. So Trinity Hymnal, 
page 676. It's right at the top. It's um, chapter 9. I could be wrong. Is it 767? <laughs> it's not a song. It's, it's all the way at the end, 676 at the end. Yeah, it's, it's there. Looks like this. Oh, right. It's a page number, sorry. At the bottom here, <laughs> 676. Number three is right at the top of the page. Dan, do you have that? It starts by man by his fall. At the top of the page is 676. It's also in the children's catechism. I warned my children ahead of time for the young people I was going to do this. So in the children's catechism, there's a section of questions that describe total depravity. So any of you, I'm going to ask these, and if any of you know them, you can speak out and tell me what they are, especially young people who have been through the children's catechism. Um, I know it's been a while. I gave these to my kids Beth got about half of them. Okay, so question 35 of the Children's Catechism. How did Adam and Eve change when they sinned? Anybody know? How did Adam and Eve change when they sinned? My kids know this because this is one of my favorite questions. This may be my favorite question in the whole kids' catechism. I'll explain why. How did Adam and Eve change when they sinned? Remember? That's right, well, instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. Why I like this question so much? Because I want my kids to understand that sin brings misery. Listen to this, young people. If you ever, if you get anything from my lesson on total depravity from today's lesson, listen to this. Sin always brings misery. Adam and Eve sinned. They went from being holy and happy to sinful and miserable. You may think that sin and the pleasures of sin will bring you happiness. It will not. It always brings misery. Don't ever forget it. As you go through life, sin and the choices to sin always brings misery. That's why I like this question. I want my kids to know that. I want them to understand that. Sin brings misery. Okay, next question. 36 in the Children's Catechism. Did Adam act for himself alone in the covenant of life? Anybody remember? All of you should know that the answer, of course, is no. Did Adam act for himself alone in the covenant of life? No, but what's the rest of it? Anybody remember? Yes, that's right. Right, Wade. No, he represented the whole human race. And some of the older kids' catechism, the answer is no. He represented his posterity. 
the same words that Wade uses. In one of the older kids' catechism, that's the way. This is a more updated, this is a newer one that says, no, he represented the whole human race. So question 37, what effect did the sin of Adam have on all people? Beth, you remember? <laughs> she doesn't want to answer. What effect did the sin of Adam have on all people? We are all born guilty and sinful. Question 38, how sinful are you by nature? This is the question we're going to answer today, and this is where I'm going to spend most of my time. Um, this answer is really short compared to mine. Um, but how sinful are you by nature? Remember? I am corrupt in every part of my being. Now, there's total depravity. How sinful are you by nature? I am corrupt in every part of my being. Question 39. What is the sinful nature that we inherit, inherit from Adam called? Anybody should know that. What is the sinful nature we inherit from Adam called? Original sin. Yeah. Original sin. Can anyone go to heaven without this sinful nature? Of course, the answer is no. Okay, but there's more to their kids' catechism question than that. Um, the answer to the kids' catechism is our hearts... Our hearts must be changed before we can believe in Jesus and go to heaven. Can anyone go to heaven? No, our hearts must be changed before we can believe in Jesus and go to heaven. Amen. So it's also interesting to note that what John Piper says about total depravity. And John Piper quotes Romans 14.23, and, and Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not from faith is sin. And so what he says is, is that, because unbelievers don't have faith that everything they do is sin. Did you catch that? Romans 14.23, whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you don't have faith, you can't do anything that's not sin. Right? I got major trouble for teaching that in a church once. <laughs> they didn't like that. Um, but that's, what, that's the consequence of what Paul is writing here in Romans. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Hebrews 11:6 And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hebrews 11 Without faith it is impossible to please God. <clears throat> okay, so with total depravity, exactly how bad is human nature? And that's what I want to talk about today. So we understand total depravity, right? Hopefully everybody understands this. I think you all, most of you understood this anyway before you even came today. You understood what total depravity was. Now the focus, it gets a little more complicated. How bad are we? Or how bad is human nature? How bad is the sinful nature that everyone inherited from Adam? Okay? So some make a claim that we are only totally depraved, but we aren't utterly depraved. First question that might come to your mind is, okay, well, what's total depravity according to that definition? What's utter depravity according to that definition? Okay, we're going to look at that right now. Now, one of the people who makes that distinction is R.C. Sproul, who's really good. Um, so I'm not really picking on him, but I just want to clarify what he says about utter depravity and how it works with total depravity. Does anybody here happen to have a Reformation study Bible? I have one here. I brought it with me. Reformation study. You have one, um, Jason? Can you? No, you don't have it with you. Okay. Um, 
If you go to Romans 3 in a Reformation study Bible, and Jason, maybe um, next week you can get back to me. And if you look at Romans 3, I'm going to show it to you. Here's Romans 3 in the Bible. There's a graphic over here on this page. This one says the atonement, and there's a big section here describing the atonement. This version that I have here is copyright 2005. Sometime after this, I know because I have the Reformation Study Bible on my phone. Sometime after this, they changed this graphic, this whole thing on the atonement here, and it said utter depravity, and it described utter depravity. Sometime, um, I, I looked at that on my phone even recently, and it was there, this thing on utter depravity. A few weeks ago, the, my Bible up, my Bible app updated some things, and I looked for that thing on total depravity for this lesson, and it's gone. It's back to this. It now says the atonement. Why they took it out, I don't really know. So, Jason, I'm curious if in your Bible, over here at Romans 3, if it says utter depravity. Um, one of the versions does, and I don't have it. Um, so I had to get my information on utter depravity from Ligonier's website. Um, but the view for total depravity versus utter depravity describes total depravity as someone being totally unable to please God. So in your natural state, you are totally unable to please God, which is why some people prefer the term total inability here because it describes our complete inability to do anything that pleases God. Okay? But the claim is also that total depravity doesn't mean that every believer is as bad as they possibly could be, which is true, right? Not everybody is as bad as they possibly could be. People could be worse. Um, and the, the people who claim this about utter depravity even claim that somebody like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin, even with all the millions of people they kid, killed, they could have been worse. They could have killed their mothers and fathers. They could have killed their parents. They could have... They could have done more evil than what they did, that even they weren't as bad as they could be. So they're say, showing that as an example to say, because everybody can't be, be as bad as they possibly could be, that we aren't utterly depraved, because utter depravity means that everybody is as bad as they possibly could be. So they're claiming that the total depravity, and the, the total and total depravity, means that man is so influenced by sin and totally, totally corrupt, that it affects every part of his being. So the total is meaning that all parts of your being are corrupted by sin, but you're not as bad as you could be. And then they claim that unbelievers or man in his natural state can do some good. They compare total depravity to utter depravity and claim that people aren't utterly depraved, but they are totally depraved. And the claim is that um, utter depravity is defining as man being as bad as possible all the time, but total depravity isn't as bad as possible all the time. Does, does this make sense? Okay. So that begs the question, how bad is the human nature? Exactly how sinful, or how is, exactly how sinful is the sin nature everyone inherited from Adam? Are we utterly depraved? Are we totally depraved? Is it somewhere in the middle? Are there more factors at work here? Okay. The way to answer this question is by the best chapter to look at for total depravity. Anybody know what it is? I already mentioned that. Romans 3. Romans 1 through Romans 3. The passage. Romans 1 through Romans 3. We're going to take a close look at Romans 3. So everybody turn to Romans 3. 
So I want you to keep in mind here that the distinction between total depravity and utter depravity claims that total depravity means that you're totally depraved, un unable to do any, unable to please God, but you can still do some good in man's natural state. Okay? And utter depravity means you're as bad as you possibly could be. So we're going to look at Romans 3 and see what Romans 3 has to say about that distinction. Um, Quentin, do you have that? Romans 3. I want you to read verses 10 through 18. 10 through 18 of Romans 3. So MacArthur splits this passage into three sections. The first being their character, the character of the people he's describing. That's verses 10 through 12. Their conversation, um, the speech of the people he's describing, verses 13 and 14. And then their conduct, their character, their conversation, and their conduct. Let's take a closer look at it. Verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. How many are there that are righteous? Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. How many seek for God? None. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. One of the things I want you to notice from here on in the rest of this chapter, it, it uses the pronoun there, right? Uh, verse 13, their throat, verse 15, their feet. Um, so what's the, the there in 13 and 14? Who is that referring to? Right? It refers back to verse 12. Right? All have turned aside. The there is referring to all. Right? Everybody. Okay? So there is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. The they is all. All have turned aside. All have become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. So can unregenerate man do good? It says here they can't. <laughs> there is none who does good. But you go, wait a minute. I've seen unbelievers do stuff I think is good. But what does the Bible say? There is none who does good. How do we explain that? How do we reconcile the two? What we see out there, we see people trying to do good, trying to be good, but the Bible says there is none who does good. Right? Okay, we're going to answer that. Keep going. Okay. Verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. I run a farm. We try as hard as we can to keep the animals alive and healthy. Sometimes we fail, don't we? What happens when animals die? What's one way we know when an animal is dead, Will and Beth? 
How do we know? How did I know when I walked into the barn yesterday that there was a dead rabbit in there as soon as I walked through the door? It stunk. I know that smell. My kids know that smell. It, we know it immediately when we see it. It's instantly recognizable to us, and it's disgusting. Okay? Their throat is an open tomb. Talk about halitosis. Bad breath. Their throat is an open tomb. What's an open tomb? Right? It's just rotting flesh. It's just a stinky, rotten person. So when they open their mouth, stench comes out, is what this is saying. It's a very graphic picture, especially to those who are familiar with death and the smell. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they keep deceiving The poison of asps is under their lips. Their words are poisonous. Their words are deadly, is what this is saying. This isn't looking good for the unbeliever, is it? John MacArthur says, if any psychologist read this, they should go get a job at the grocery store. (laughs) Once you understand man's nature. Okay? Okay. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That word cursing there means um, if you hate somebody and you want the absolute worst for them and you want them to die, you curse them. That's what it was in, the, in these days. It was cursing, wishing death or, some, or horrible things to happen to somebody. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Okay, two things here. Their feet are swift to shed blood. What's that mean? They're quick to kill. They're quick to murder. So unbelieving man is quick to kill. Well, here again, you might ask yourself, wait a minute. The unbelievers I know, I mean, they're not the best, but they're nice. They're not trying to kill me. But what does God's word say? Can they do any good? There is none who does good. There are none that are righteous. Their feet are quick to shed blood. So the Bible says that they are murderers. How does that work? We're getting there. Destruction and misery are in their past. Here it is again, young people. Misery. Sin brings misery. Don't forget it. Okay? God gave you His law to follow because it will make you happy. He gave you parents that love you to teach you to make you happy. You disobey your parents, you sin, and it will bring misery. Don't forget it. Okay, enough of that. (laughs) I want them to know it. Never forget it. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What does the fear of God do? What does the fear of God bring? This is over and over and over again, especially in the book of Proverbs, in Scripture. The fear of God does what? Brings wisdom. Okay? And by the fear of God, men depart from evil. Right? The fear of God restrains people's behavior. Right? People do good because they are afraid of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes, it says, for the unbeliever. Okay? 
Okay. So it is true that we don't see the things in Romans 3 played out in society every day, do we? I mean, if it was, right now there'd be people running around shooting and killing each other, right? Constantly trying to deceive each other. Doing nothing but trying to destroy each other, right? But we don't see that. So the question is why? MacArthur answers this in that sermon on who's to blame for the riots. And so God has placed restraints in society that controls man's sinful behavior. It's common grace. John MacArthur lists four things that God uses to restrain the sinful nature, to restrain society, to keep people from being as bad as they possibly could. The first one is their conscience. God has given everybody a conscience, right? Um, A conscience properly informed, especially with the Word of God, will help guide you on your path. But consciences that are misinformed become like what Paul said. They become seared with a hot iron. They become useless or scarred. Um, But the conscience is one way God uses to control people. He has given everybody a conscience. Uh, Another control that God has put on society is the family. God has given people, mothers and fathers, to teach them, to teach them right and wrong. Even unbelievers do this, okay? Another constraint God has put in society is civil law, civil law enforcement, the police, right? They don't bear the sword for nothing, Romans, right? God has given the government authority for a reason. What's the reason? It's to keep order, to restrain man's sinful nature. You ask people in law enforcement if people have a sinful nature, what do you think they're going to tell you, right? They need control. The reason why somebody doesn't go walk across the store and shoot the clerk and take everything that's in the store, one reason is because of their fear of being thrown in jail for the rest of their life, right? God has given the government control, authority, the sword, and laws to enforce to control the sinful nature that people inherited from Adam. Another constraint God has given to the society is the church. How does the government know what laws they're supposed to pass? How do they know what they're supposed to enforce? I've talked to Pastor, I talked to Pastor Aaron, Aaron Deline about this quite a few times. And we agreed and we would talk about this, how the church has failed to inform the government on the laws it's supposed to pass. One reason our government is as wicked as it is is because the church has failed to do its job. The church is to instruct the people, instruct his congregations, tell them God's law, help them to understand God's law, And the people will help enforce that in the government. The church can also directly inform the government, the lawmakers, what's right and what's wrong. When the church fails to do this, the whole thing falls apart. Right? It's the church's job to inform the government the laws it's supposed to pass. The church is a constraint God has placed on society in general. The church is not just for believers, but the church's influence affects all of society. Okay. So those are four constraints. Okay, everybody has a conscience, it's family, the police or law enforcement, and the church. So the question becomes, is it that human nature isn't as bad as it could be, or is it that human nature is as bad as it could be, but that the restraints God has placed in society keep man's sinful nature from showing its full evil potential? You get that? So is utter depravity true? Yes. We're not all as bad as we could be. But the question is why? Is it because there's some good in our sinful nature that keeps us from being bad as we could be? 
I say no. Okay? So here, let me read the question again. So is it that human nature isn't as bad as it possibly could be, or is it that human nature is as bad as it possibly could be, but that God has placed restraints in society to keep man's sinful nature from showing its full evil potential? So the reason I'm uneasy about the term utter depravity is because when you compare utter depravity with total depravity, they, they, a lot of times they try to make it say that unbelievers can do some good. And they make it seem like unbelievers can do some good on their own. Now, if I nailed the people down and I asked them that, they would say no. no they can't do good. So I just want to clarify it. I want you to understand that the, the reason is people aren't utterly depraved and running around killing each other and being totally deceitful like Romans 3 claims is not because there is something good in our sinful nature. Not because there is something good or that unregenerate man can do something good. Okay? Paul declares in Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For willing is present in me, but the working out of good is not. Right? Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. The working out of good is not. It's not there. So, are fallen people capable of doing good? Well, I guess it depends on how you look at it, right? Are you starting to understand? Is this making sense? I think so. Okay. Okay, so let me give you some proof of this. Um, why is it so sinful? Every man has a sinful nature. We inherit it from Adam. As Romans 3 clearly says, it makes everybody, everybody's a murderer. Everybody's deceitful. No one can do any good. Romans 3 makes it clear, right? But God has placed constraints in society that restrict people's sinful nature. Okay? And how do we see proof of this? Well, remember I told you about the sermon by John MacArthur? Um, who's to blame for the riots? Well, guess what his answer is? Who's to blame for the riots? Okay. What happens when you start removing these restraints? The conscience. When the conscience becomes misinformed. If you tell somebody it's okay to kill people enough, what do you think they're going to do? Kill people. If you tell people it's okay to go out and steal and loot and destroy stores, you can do that. It's okay. It's fine. It's okay to do. What do you think people are going to do? If you tell people it's okay to lie, you can say whatever you want. You can tell people whatever you want. What are, you, what are people going to do? So even though God has given us a conscience, if the conscience becomes misinformed, if people sear their consciences with a hot iron, and they destroy it, what are they going to do? The family, the restraints. So what happens when you destroy the family? You take fathers and mothers away. You have two fathers, you have two mothers. Or one father and one mother. Divorce run rampant, Right? Half the children don't even have a family. At least not as families should be. Right? So what happens? You destroy the family. You destroy any kind of control. You make corporal punishment illegal. You say you can't spank children anymore. You just got to let them do what they're going to do. And so what do children do? The police. I don't know if you knew this about the riots. The organizations who were in charge of the riots... I, you don't even realize this. It wasn't riots were a planned thing. The people who were sending the rioters out would call the city ahead of time, that where they were going, and 
Tell the chief of, chief of police you have to stand down. You can't oppose the rioters. Do you know why there weren't any riots in Detroit? The chief of police told them no. So what happens when the people go into a city and the police don't do anything? When the police stop punishing, the e punishing evil, right, and, restore, and, re and <laughs> rewarding the righteous, and they start punishing the righteous and rewarding the evil, what happens? You have riots, right? What happens when the church fails to do its job? When it fails to inform people what God's law is, what's right and wrong? What happens? You saw it in the riots, right? And if somebody goes out, you saw this too in the riots. Somebody goes out and tries to stop the rioters. What do the rioters do? They kill them. You remove the strength from society, and you start to see the sinful nature coming out in its full evil. Now, it is true that people aren't as bad as they could be, and even the worst of people, Adolf Hitler and Stalin, could have been worse. But I don't think we've seen what would happen with people and their nature when these restraints, if they're completely removed, what would happen. So I thank God it hasn't happened yet. Okay? So John MacArthur says in that sermon, so he says, okay, so who's to blame? His summing. He says, sinners, all of them, everybody, all of us. Families have failed to raise virtuous, disciplined children in loving marriages, weak government leaders who fail to protect the good and punish those who do evil, and false churches not full of godly people or transformed hearts living righteous lives. Who's to blame for the riots? This is the restraints being removed from society that God has put into place. Okay, now, let me, let me finish this up, this lesson on total depravity. I would be extremely remiss if I didn't cover one thing about total depravity at the end. I have attempted in this lesson to not continually say, we are totally depraved. I'm trying to say, man in his sinful state or unbelievers are totally depraved. Why? Now, don't hang me or lynch me for saying we don't have a sinful nature. Yes, we do. We all inherited the sinful nature, everybody in here. But I want you to understand that if you are a believer, the people in this room, we are not under the control of our sinful nature anymore. We have been rescued. This is the great news of total depravity, the sinful nature is we have been rescued from it. We have been saved from it. We are no longer under the curse of sin. We have been set free from the law of sin and death. We have been rescued from our total depravity. We have been delivered from it, as the Bible says. Open your Bibles to Romans 6. We looked at Romans 3. That was the bad news. Let's look at Romans 6. Let's look at the good news. If we're going to look so bad, or so so far into the bad news, we better look this good into good news. I remember um, I, at camps and other things, people would give their testimonies, and people would stand up, and sometimes they would go on and on and on about how bad they were and the drugs they did and all the things they were involved in doing. And then at the end of their testimony, and then I would say, "You know, have a nice day." <laughs> Half an hour went by about the evil they did. Let's talk about the good. Let's talk about God redeeming you and saving you. We're going to talk about total depravity. Let's talk about how God has rescued us from it. Romans 6, verse 6. Cliff Montra, you got that? 
Go ahead. Doesn't matter. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. Okay, here's something you just read in the NIV. It says, um, our body ruled by sin. I like that phrase. So um, my legacy standard version here says, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. The NIV translated it, ruled by sin. That's a good phrase. The unbeliever is ruled by sin. They are completely controlled by by it. But our old man was crucified with Christ. We were rescued from that state of sin. Okay? Our body of sin is done away with. We are no longer slaves to sin. Verse 11, Romans 6. Skip down to verse 11. Carlos, you have that? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Dan. Or... So we went from being a slave to sin, being ruled by sin, and now we are dead to sin. But and they were and we were dead to sin, but now we are alive in Christ Jesus. Romans six, go to verse seventeen and eighteen. Check on the John, Lasco, do you have that? <laughs> yeah. Romans six, seventeen and eighteen. We went from being slaves of sin to being slaves of righteousness. We have been freed from sin. In Christ we have been rescued. It says, You obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching to which you were given over. The King James and New King James say, For which you were delivered from. The pattern of teaching you were delivered from. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Romans 6 Skip down to verses 22 and 23 in Romans 6. Verses 22 and 23. Ethan. There's one of the great verses hopefully learned and memorized as a kid. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have been freed from sin. Freed from sin, and now we are enslaved to God. I have a few more here just in closing. I'll just give these to you again in shotgun form here. I'm just going to read these to you. This is the good news. We have been rescued from our sin. One more note to the young people here. Okay, what does total depravity mean about people who are unbelievers? How, what is their behavior like? The Bible says they are slaves to their sin. What fellowship can you have with that? Who should your friends be? Who should a boyfriend or girlfriend be? Somebody who is enslaved to sin? May it never be. Okay? 
even though you don't see these things working out because of the restraints God has put on society, but keep in mind what Romans 3 says. That is the true heart of unregenerate man. But believers, Romans 8, great chapters. Some call this the the climax of Scripture, the pinnacle of all the Scriptures, Romans 8. Therefore, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Second Peter 1.4 For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature, nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed. Behold, new things have come. Colossians 1.13-14 Who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son in love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh or from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. And later he says, and you will be my God. And I, he says, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you have rescued us from the domain of darkness. You have delivered us from our sinful nature. You did not leave us in our sinful state, in the sin that we inherited from Adam, but you rescued us. You delivered us. And now we are slaves to righteousness, slaves to God. Your willing servants, desiring to do what is right, Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us through your Son and delivering us from sin. Thank you that you sent your Son to die in our place, that we might be delivered from our sin and live holy, pleasing lives to you. Lord, be with us today as we study more from your Word. Sanctify us in your truth. Your Word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.